Hi, it's Diane. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a special Thanksgiving episode that we're in the process of preparing and in which we'd like you to participate. We want to include the voices of our listeners, your voice, on the podcast. If you'd like to participate, record a three to five minute audio file about Thanksgiving, why you are feeling grateful or not this year, or a thought about this American holiday, and send it to realthepodcast at gmail.com. If you have an iPhone, it's easy to record your voice using the Voice Memo app. If you're intrigued to share, go for it and don't overthink. The deadline to be included is end of day on Thursday, November 16th. I look forward to receiving your voices. Okay, here's the show. Losing the capacity to be contentedly alone, losing the capacity for solitude, I actually think this is one of the things that uh, our devices are conditioning in us. And the trouble is, if we can't be contentedly alone, if we can't enjoy our own company and feel settled and not anxious in those moments that we're not connected to our device or another you know, human through our device, once we reach for it, once we reach out for connection with another person, no one's home to connect because we're not connected with ourselves and our own experience. From Life Atelier Studios, it's real. Stories of adversity, resilience, creativity, and transformation. I'm Diane McDaniel, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Celeste Young, mindfulness meditation practitioner and teacher. Celeste talks about her own search as a young person to lessen her suffering and develop a new relationship to experience and the joy she now feels in sharing what she loves with students who are dealing with anxiety and stress. Celeste also talks about developing a balanced relationship with the technologies that both claim our attention and connect us to community and how being silent and practicing mindfulness can be a doorway into compassion for oneself. Thanks, Celeste, for coming in to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Could you introduce yourself and tell us something that you'd like others to know about you? Sure. Uh, my name is Celeste Young, and I teach mindfulness, meditation, and also Buddhist Dharma, and uh, work with people in a variety of capacities, so teaching classes and individual sessions, and then retreats and day-longs, and I also do some corporate wellness work. Okay, terrific. Yeah. We'll be getting into some of that today. So you've been practicing meditation for over a decade and teaching mindfulness and meditation for several years. How did you get involved in the practice? Mm. Well, <laughs> it's sort of funny. I, I feel in a way like I didn't have a choice about getting involved in the practice. I grew up with meditation. So my mother was a practitioner of yoga and meditation and 
she had been meditating for many years before I was even born. Oh, okay. So it was always part of your life. It was always part of my life, but it was kind of a weird thing that mom did, you know, like when she was upstairs meditating, I had to be quiet. That's, uh-huh. that's how you register it as a child, right, you know? Right. This imposition on yeah, me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But as a teenager, I just had a lot of turmoil. And so I was really suffering a lot. I picked up a book on Buddhism when I was about, I think, 16 or maybe 17. Mm, good age for that. Yeah. You're open yeah. to those ideas. Yeah. And I was very open because I was struggling so much. And I had, you know, I loved to read and I'd read different books. And I was always really drawn to spirituality ever since I was a child. But when I read this book on Buddhism, it was sort of like someone was telling me the truth. Mm. And I think as a teenager, especially, you long for someone to tell it like it is. Right. So it really resonated for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you start practicing at that point? How, how did that uh, reading that book and sort of your longing for some insight, I guess, um, lead you to meditation? Mm. Yeah, I started trying to practice. <laughs> I'll put it that way. So the teachings really resonated deeply. And sort of my wish was that, you know, after reading the book, I could become more free of suffering, more compassionate, more awake in daily life. But mm-hmm. that didn't happen for me just reading the book. <laughs> so, right, right. so I did try to meditate some. And, you know, I'm sure those experiments were fruitful in some ways, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, I actually read another book a few years later called Shambhala, Path of the Warrior, so a little bit different tradition. And, and then I was uh, living in Seattle at that time, and I passed by a building, and there was a sign on the outside of the building that said Shambhala, mm-hmm. and it's such an unusual word. I thought there must be some connection with this book I'm reading. Right. So I went there, and it was a meditation center, and that was where I began to actually get instruction and really started my formal practice. Oh, okay. And then, yeah. what about your your mother? Did you go to her at any point and talk to her about what she was doing and and your your wish to start trying to meditate? Actually, no, I didn't. You know, I was drawn to the tradition of mindfulness because it was so grounded, and my mom's practice was a bit more esoteric. Mm. So I think I was sort of finding my own way with it, finding my own path. Right, right. Mm. At some point, you started to teach. So what made you go from uh, practicing to to teaching? How did that work resonate with you? Yeah, I was pretty quiet when I was practicing. So I'd been, I've, let's see, I've been uh, meditating about 16 years now since, since I got that formal instruction. Sure. Right. <laughs> you could count it as 18 years if you counted that time that I was trying to meditate and didn't know what I was doing. But, and, and so when I started teaching, I think I had been meditating for about a decade. I actually didn't have an aspiration to teach meditation, but I noticed that the Dharma and my practice became so central that it was a little bit like everything else in my life kept getting pushed out to the periphery. Mm. And I was doing a lot of intensive retreat practice and 
I was pretty involved at Inside LA once I moved to Los Angeles, and Trudy Goodman, the founder of Inside LA, asked me to give what's called a Donna talk at the end of one of the teachings she offered. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what, what, what is that word, Donna? So Donna is the word for generosity in Pali. Mm-hmm. Pali is the language that the Buddha spoke. And right. traditionally, a lot of these Dharma teachings were passed on through Donna. So mm-hmm. they were just offered freely and given, and then the community supported the teachers who were offering the teachings in right. a variety of ways. And so the sitting groups that we offer at Inside LA are offered in this traditional format. So there's no charge for the teachings. People just come right. and offer. And so at the end, you know, someone's asked to give a little short talk about Donna and what that is and offering. And so she asked me to do that, just put me on the spot <laughs> with, mm-hmm. with no preparation and said, well, you just give this Donna talk. And so I talked for maybe five or 10 minutes. And then afterwards, she pulled me aside and she said, I heard you give the Donna talk, and it was like these Dharma doors just opened. Mm. Will you come to our teacher development cohort? And it was the first cohort she had started, and she just brought me into the fold spontaneously and asked me to start substituting for her sometimes mm. when she was away. Right. So, so it was got, very organic the yeah. way it happened. You got yeah. tossed in. <laughs> I did. I did. Which, yeah, which I kind of like because I, it wasn't a lot of pressure in a way. It was just sort of like. Do you remember what you talked about at that first Donna talk? You know, I remember. Yeah, I think I talked about how deeply these teachings touch our own minds and hearts and the possibility of freedom that they offer us and what a huge gift that is and how natural it is to want to support this kind of offering for other beings if you are connected to your own experience of being changed and having this kind of freedom that it's so natural that you want that for all beings. Mm, Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you you have found an answer, I guess, in the in the meditation that you've done to the the pain and suffering that you are experiencing as a younger person. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you did the teacher training, and and so what about it has kept you teaching? What, what is resonating with you or has resonated with you? Mm. Yeah, teaching is a wonderful practice. I, and our training, our training never ends. <laughs> so I joined that training, that very first cohort in 2011, and we have meetings every month. Uh, our meetings used to go from 7 in the morning until 2 p.m. once a month, like very intensive. Yeah. It's been ongoing. So, And I think that's wonderful because teaching is an ongoing process. And so to have ongoing support and developing is great. But yeah, teaching is a very profound practice. So I think that it really calls you to obviously deepen your own practice to be able to share. Mm-hmm. But also what I learned from teaching, I was quiet before I started teaching when I was practicing. So when I was in groups, if I was in a class, if I was in a sitting meditation group, 
I didn't talk a whole lot mm-hmm. <laughs> about my practice. I was pretty quiet. And in fact, I often love slipping in and out and not really talking to anybody, just sure. sitting. And so once I started teaching, I recognized how helpful it is to have to articulate what you've learned, mm. you know, to really articulate why you're practicing, what you're gaining from practice, how it unfolds is a beautiful experience in, in deepening your practice. Mm-hmm. And then just, it's so fascinating to see how unique each person's unfolding is. So each student, each person who comes through the doors has such different, you know, life conditions, history, and the way that the practice touches them is different. And so you have to find new ways of sharing the teachings that reach people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the Buddha talked about this during his time. He said, speak in the vernacular of the people that you're mm. speaking with and and so teaching is always an exercise in how to make this relevant right. to who you're speaking with and and that's a beautiful aspect of the teaching experience right helps you to understand your own practice yes a lot more yeah it's a deep gift articulate it and understand it really yes so you, uh, you've you talked about a little bit uh, that you teach mindfulness meditation and you mentioned Dharma teachings. Could you tell us, kind of briefly describe what these practices are and tell us about your teaching? Sure. <laughs> mindfulness meditation, often when we hear that term, we're talking about a practice that's become sort of mainstream. So this word mindfulness is derived from a number of Buddhist traditions, but primarily Theravada Buddhism. And, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, John Kabat-Zinn in particular uh, was the main person who was responsible for the creation of this program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Mm -hmm. And so he took these teachings he'd been practicing and uh, practicing meditation, and he saw how deeply he benefited and he wanted to share this benefit with Mm -hmm. people. And so he started sharing the teachings in this more secular format. So he took it out of its Buddhist context and this principle of mindfulness you know, mindfulness is, as he defines it, would be paying attention in a particular way that's on purpose, mm-hmm. that's in the present moment, and non-judgmental. Right. And we all know that quality of attention. So I think when we hear the word mindfulness, you know, it, it resonates in each of our own hearts and minds. We kind of know what that is, mm-hmm. which is interesting because another way that that word is translated is the... Pali word mm-hmm. for mindfulness is sati mm-hmm. from the Buddha's teachings, this word sati. And one of the most literal translations of sati means to remember. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of remembering, you know, sometimes we say that mindfulness is easy, but remembering to be mindful is what's challenging. <laughs> so there's this right. kind of remembering, remembering this way of paying attention to our experience that's open and uh, non-interfering and, and kind even. So that quality is found in Buddhism, but of course it's found 
throughout the world in different spiritual traditions and different religions. And so taking that principle out of its Buddhist context and offering it in this form, uh, this has kind of become the mainstream mindfulness movement. Mm -hmm. So I teach mindfulness meditation, and it's very much derived from Buddhism, but you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice, obviously. And there's a lot of science now behind it and so we bring that into the teaching so that's the mindfulness meditation practice and then dharma teachings are just dharma is a word that is from buddhism and it has a number of translations but one way of translating it is it's just sort of the way things are Mm. the dharma is like i'm looking out your window and seeing the trees like trees grow up mm-hmm. <laughs> they grow up towards the sky right they don't grow down gravity is so it's kind of these universal laws mm. like impermanence that things are always changing right no one can say that that's not true we all see that you know we age that we die these kinds of universal truths so dharma teachings you know that's these kind of universal truths but uh, when I'm talking about that, it's specifically, you know, the Buddhist teachings in that context. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for defining what those uh, what those words mean and and how they get incorporated into into your teaching. Hmm. You are currently teaching those classes, and you have a background in teaching yin yoga. So you talked a little bit about this already with regards to your mindfulness practice but what keeps you interested in in teaching how does it nourish you Hmm. teaching nourishes me in so many ways actually it's really it's really something i love you know what keeps me interested in teaching is really the deep benefit that i see people experiencing Hmm. just the the opportunity to be of service is so uh, important to me, and that's always been something that's been important to me since I was young. And when I was really young, I remember this experience. I actually went in one time to my teacher and was sharing this, one of my first retreats. I was telling her that when I was really young and I was suffering a lot, I experienced my own suffering as suffering over suffering. (laughs) Mm. I was suffering because I was suffering. But that was because I could feel that when I was suffering, I couldn't be of benefit. Mm. I couldn't be of service in the world because I was so ensnared in my own difficulties. And even as a child, I felt that. Mm. I didn't like that feeling of feeling so consumed by what I was struggling with that I couldn't be of benefit. I had this really deep desire to be of service ever since I was little. And so that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind is just that opportunity to be of service is so profoundly uh, moving. And just, I have a lot of gratitude for that. And then I think it's also kind of my own practice and feeling like so much of my life is centered around the Dharma. Mm -hmm. If I didn't teach I mean, my friends would probably be so annoyed with me (laughs) 
because I would probably be talking about the Dharma all the time anyway. <laughs> so I think that... Uh, you get to put it into your teaching. <laughs> exactly. I get to share things with people who are actually interested, hopefully, because they signed up for a class or they came to me to learn. So, yeah, so I think just the joy of of sharing something that I love, you know. <laughs> it allows you to uh, contain that. Uh. Yeah, exactly. It allows me to be quiet, hopefully, about the Dharma if I'm just at dinner with friends who don't care about it or whatever. <laughs> That's great. I like that, uh, <laughs> that benefit of teaching. <laughs> I noticed that you call the classes that you teach offerings, and I'm mm. just curious about that word, what it what it means to you. Yeah. You know, I just like that word. <laughs> I think it's a lovely word. But actually, it's a really interesting question because, yeah, it makes me reflect on why I chose that word for, for my offerings, <laughs> for my teachings. And I guess the reason is that it, it is an offering, so it's offered freely, but what somebody does with that is sort of up to them. Mm-hmm. So it's offered, but I'm not saying, here are the 10 steps to ultimate happiness forever. <laughs> After right. you take this class, you will be, you know. So I think offering is appropriate because it's offered, and then, and then how, what's what's done with that is is up to the person who's receiving how they receive it what they do with it how they make it their own that's really important yeah and it really Mm -hmm. uh, goes into what you were talking about that sort of non-judgmental so I'm going to offer this to you but really it's up to you to do what you're going to do with it so there's a bit of responsibility on the person receiving the offering yes and for you there's a little boundary in terms of I'm not going to force this on you. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I do my best to share wholeheartedly with all the enthusiasm I have for these teachings, but then uh, it's up to them, Mm -hmm. ultimately. You know, and and one of the things that I find really trustworthy about the Buddha's teachings is that, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I don't practice it as a religion. But, you know, the Buddha was a person, he wasn't a god, he was just a human being like you and I, and one of the things he said is, uh, don't take my word for it. Mm. Test the teachings in the laboratory of your own experience. Mm. And I think that's very trustworthy when someone tells you to do that. They say, don't right. believe me. <laughs> Try right. it and see. Yeah. yeah. But so it's such a different uh, approach than all of the sort of everything, how everything is marketed to us these days. And right. really kind of a hard push to take this. And, and your approach is really, it's, it, I noticed that word offering when I first heard you say it because it just struck me as very different. Mm. Yeah. Than kind of our more pervasive culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you consider the most important, or sort of, you know, one of the most important things that you can offer to your students? <laughs> oh, that's a big question. Yeah, I think one of the most important things that I could hope to offer would be the possibility of 
lessening their suffering and finding a new relationship to their experience. Mm. So, you know, mindfulness and, and the teachings of Dharma are not about uh, accumulating, you know, accumulating new experiences or coming to class and thinking we're going to become a completely different person or but really finding a new relationship to experience that's freeing and liberating and recognizing the ways that we get entangled and that we uh, create some of our own difficulty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then hopefully offering the possibility of really deeply trusting in their own experience. These teachings that you offer are... are ancient and sometimes we feel like the problems we face are unique to ourselves or to our time and I, I wonder what you reflect about that are the things that people suffer sort of uh, transcendent of the environment in which we live or the time in which we live how do these ancient teachings address contemporary problems mm. Yeah, that's a great question also. Obviously, we're living in a unique time. (laughs) And there are many different forms of horrendous suffering happening all over the world. Um, And it's, it's very challenging for many people on the planet right now. And I also think that that the teachings are universal and that uh, even stories like the Buddha having back pain, (laughs) you know, there's a sutta where the Buddha talks about having back pain and that he asked his cousin Ananda to teach, to give the Dharma talk that night because he had back pain. He didn't feel like teaching. He didn't feel well, you know. So in that <laughs> all way, of us can relate to that one, right? <laughs> right. All of us can relate to that. And also, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't like the Buddha's teachings. That thought that you know he was not genuine, and all of these kinds of things. And that's thousands of years ago. And you see the same kinds of things now. It's just that with our technology and the conditions now, we have a lot of different avenues for these same seeds of suffering Mm -hmm. uh, that you see. Yeah, I think that we have to use the teachings in a way that's relevant to this time, um, but that they are very relevant to Mm -hmm. this time. Right. You've worked in the past with young people, and you currently uh, curate a free Sunday night sitting group for people in their 20s and 30s. I noticed that you weren't doing that for people in their 40s and 50s or (laughs) 60s and 70s. So what do you enjoy about working with young people? Yeah, well, it's really an interesting thing because the community at Inside LA in particular, it tended to just draw people who are a little older it's been like that a little bit in the western 
Buddhist communities and insight meditation communities. And I think part of the reason is that a lot of the teachers were older. Mm -hmm. And so people are drawn to folks they can relate to. There were some young people who were drawn, you know, like me and and a few others, but generally it was it tended to be an older community and it's been really wonderful to be part of the growth of this uh, young people's sangha. I think that one of the things I really enjoy about it is looking around and feeling like I'm seeing my peers in some ways. You know, it's a different stage of life, so the kinds of questions that come up, the kinds of uh, choices and that young people are facing and that they're struggling with or grappling with are different uh, than than other generations and you know this particular generation what we're looking at what we're working with it's really interesting to see the different creative solutions that they're coming up with around the problems that we're facing in the world and and also just it's a confusing time you know Mm -hmm. so there's this longing to help and seeing the suffering and then there's also this getting lost in their own struggles and challenges and dealing with social media and how to have a career and be assertive but not be harmful and you know it's just like so many different interesting right questions very rich time in life yeah partnership relationship how to do that all of those kinds of things that come up Right. Technology is huge. Yeah, they work with that. So it's really interesting to feel that. And they're also very receptive. You know, they're, uh, I think their minds are a little bit less fixed in views and opinions. They're a little more malleable in some ways. Right. Yeah. Well, because they're making choices. And right. so things could go one way or they could go another way. Right? Yeah. So it's an And open they can time. change week to week. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen somebody for a few months and there's a completely different. Uh, view there with that person maybe as Uh I've been practicing so it's interesting to see that yeah I wanted to ask you a little bit about this all the screens that we live with during the time that you've been practicing and teaching so many of us have become connected to those phones and screens Mm -hmm. which can be such a distraction from where we are in our present I think Regardless of how much you love your phone or not, uh, you know, everybody can say, yes, it's very distracting. What are some of uh, your thoughts about the effects of how our devices continually pull us out of the present moment? Yeah, (laughs) so many thoughts about this. It's such a challenge. It's such a challenge. We already have this really strong habit of not wanting to be here Mm -hmm. and of the mind going elsewhere. And now we have these devices that, in a moment, take us elsewhere. Yeah. And And they they remind us to go elsewhere. They remind us to go elsewhere. They're calling us elsewhere. You know, we could just, you know, the studies showing having a phone out on the dinner table, even if it's not buzzing, even if you're not on it, but just seeing it. Yeah that we have that association that it makes you less present. And so I actually will take my phone and put it out of sight, literally like in a cabinet Mm -hmm. sometimes when I'm at home because I just don't want to feel that pull and I don't want to condition 
my attention to be constantly at the beck and call of this device. And there are so many different associations with it. Of mm-hmm. course, we associate connection with it because we have a whole community yep. coming through that device, right? But at the same time, I think you know we're, we're at a time where we're longing, deeply longing for connection and deeply longing for community. And yet, when we're constantly connected through that device and we're not taking time for solitude, not even meditation, I'm mm-hmm. not even talking about meditation, I think the meditation is a step and a necessity so that what happens when we get up from our meditation cushion is that we know how to be present moment by moment and how to be contentedly alone. Mm -hmm. Losing the capacity to be contentedly alone, losing the capacity for solitude, I actually think this is one of the things that uh, our devices are conditioning in us. And the trouble is, if we can't be contentedly alone, if we can't enjoy our own company and feel settled and not anxious in those moments that we're not connected to our device or another you know, human through our device, right. once we reach for it, once we reach out for connection with another person, no one's home to connect because mm-hmm. we're not connected with ourselves and our own experience. Right. We have this phrase in Buddhism that actually talk about it in Tibetan Buddhism, which is not my tradition, but the phrase is the hungry ghost. Mm. And so it's this feeling of not, no matter how much you're grasping and reaching, that you you can't be fed. And Mm. it's like these ghosts have these tiny little um, mouths, so they're trying to eat this food and they can't can't, uh, get it Mm -hmm. into their system. And that belly is like swollen because they're they're not actually fed. That phenomena, I think, is a little bit what happens for us with technology. There's this tendency that the mind already has to grasp and to want to reach out. And as I was saying earlier, it's a wholesome tendency when we're longing for connection, when we're longing for community, but we're reaching in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Conditioning ourselves to constantly have, how would I say? So how I would say it is it's like, it's like we're losing the capacity to have a choice about where our attention mm. goes. Because mm-hmm. we know, become so reactive. We become so reactive. And then that creates anxiety. And so much of what brings people to work with me you know, privately or they come to classes, so much anxiety running through our nervous systems. Mm. And a lot of that is just this hypervigilance. You know, we hear a ping and the brain doesn't know the difference between something's wrong and it's actually just you know a note coming from an iphone that's letting you know you have a text so the brain registers it in that same way and we become kind of attuned to this hyper vigilant hyper anxious but Mm. feeling disconnected state right i'm not against technology i think it's a wonderful tool but i think that if we don't foster this capacity to claim our own attention and have a choice about where we want it to be in any moment that it can really actually cause us a lot of suffering Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i know i know a lot of young people suffer from anxiety and uh, depression and i wonder and kind of that 
you know, not being included, that yeah. uh, not enoughness. And I, you know, I wonder how much that is that, I mean, it might be a time in life, but it's also exacerbated by those devices, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, right. it's, it's very challenging. I think that, you know, again, it's not like the solution is to get rid of it, but it's more like what you cultivate alongside it mm-hmm. so that it's in its proper place in your life. If it gets a really big place in your life, social media or these kinds of things, or, you know, like you were saying, the pressure, or this feeling of not enoughness, mm-hmm. And that's your predominant experience, and you don't have the experience of knowing how to be contentedly alone or mm. having really enriching experiences in person with people, feeling connected in that way, experiencing mirror neurons and how healthy that is for us, you know, all of that. That, yeah, it can really be a problem. Right. And we have to find a relationship with technology that feels healthy and a lot of that does involve saying no at times that we have to be willing to put it down and to let go of that tendency to want to know what's happening that feeling you know why Mm -hmm. (laughs) do you really need to know what is it that you're looking for what is it that you're looking for in that moment that you reach for the device yeah Silence and stillness are such an important component of the practice and the, the teachings that you do. Can you just expand a little bit on why those are important? You talked about sort of that contented aloneness, but is there, what are some of the um, benefits or values of silence and stillness beyond that? I love that question. <laughs> Because I love silence and stillness, and I also struggle with finding time for it in daily life because the momentum of our busyness and our connections and our activities is so strong. And yet, the more time I make for solitude and silence, the happier I am. It's really true. So the first time I went on a silent meditation retreat, First of all, I had been meditating for years, but I was scared of Mm. being in silence Mm. for that long. (laughs) I just want to say that because a lot of the times, now it's such a big part of my life, and I go on silent retreat for a long time, a month, three months, and I've done this for 10 years, and, and people will sometimes come up and ask me about it, and they're so afraid of going and I felt that way I was really and how long were you going for your first time only five days yeah well that's that might be a long time yeah I say only five days okay it was maybe it was four nights or yeah five days what were some of your your fears what did you think would happen you know I think talking was just such a big part of my life that I didn't know what it would be like to not talk. And mm. in some way, it was almost like, could I make sense of my experience without processing it out loud or without getting some kind of feedback mm. or having connection? And I also think that I was afraid something might come up that I wouldn't be able to just be quiet with, mm. that I would feel like I had to mm. talk about it or something. So 
yeah, I was a little afraid of going into silence. And what I found is that I just loved it so much. And for me, it's different for everybody, of course. And it's not that for every single person who practices, you know, mindfulness meditation or dharma that it's the appropriate thing or the right thing to go. But for me, I just felt that I had a space to be kind of most essentially who I was in some way. Mm. That that actually came through in the silence. And I felt so connected to myself and to others, actually, and to Mm. life around me in a way that was just very profound. And I think part of that is that it wasn't being mediated by thought Mm. and interpretation in the same way that we're constantly, you know, the Buddha says, oh, we, with our thoughts, we create the world and so on. And so there's really truth to that. You know, when we're constantly talking, we're interpreting our experience, we are kind of creating our reality through our perceptions. Absolutely. And to just drop that and be in the experience was so intimate that it was just really nourishing for me. And I also found that in the silence, I could see uh, the thoughts coming and going in the mind Mm -hmm. much more clearly. Mm -hmm. And I had so much... uh, had an experience of insight into things that had happened in my life and the ways in which I contributed to my own suffering and you know I'm smiling as I'm telling you this because that's so liberating Mm. and that's what's meant by liberating insight you know we talk about our practice as insight meditation that's that's some of what we see and we just don't see it sometimes without the silence so when you're continually silent and practicing mindfulness you really can see into the nature of the mind and heart in a way that for me changed my life mm-hmm. and it was really a doorway into compassion so I my, it was like my heart opened to myself mm-hmm. in a way that just hadn't happened until that point even right. though I'd been meditating and I had been practicing it was just very uh, very different so I think the stillness and the solitude the silence helps us to slow down enough to be still enough to see more clearly what's actually happening mm, right mm-hmm. right and be with that in a different way yes the opposite of what we were just talking of before of <laughs> yes. constantly <laughs> reacting to the ding which could mean <laughs> Anything. (laughs) Anything. Something important or just a mistake. Somebody you don't know texted you, right? Right. Exactly. (laughs) It could mean anything. (laughs) Beyond taking classes for people who aren't ready for that or can't do it, do you have any suggestions for helping people incorporate those qualities into their everyday life? Hmm. Yeah, there are a number of things you can do, and it's funny because earlier I was saying, trust your own experience, and even though people ask for suggestions about this, 
even when they ask, oftentimes they know what they need to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how can I live more mindfully? But they know I need to close my laptop at the end of the day, mm-hmm. right? Or I need to stop bringing my laptop into the bedroom, or I need to take three minutes in the morning to pause and do nothing before I go on to my first commitment or whatever it might be. So I would really say check in with yourself. We usually know those areas where we just get completely caught, where we get reactive or where we're too busy or we get lost in whatever's going on. Certainly a lot of it is around technology. You know, the laptop was the first <laughs> the first example I gave. But also just practices like when you're in conversation with people, paying attention to your body some. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about mindful speaking and mindful listening in our practice. Even if you're not meditating, it can be really interesting. So much of our lives take place uh, relationally. Mm-hmm. And that's also where a lot of our reactivity happens, sure. <laughs> of course, particularly with our close relationships. And we won't even go into politics. But that's actually an interesting place to start to practice mindfulness. So noticing, you know, when you're speaking with someone, are you in your body? Mm. Do you feel your body? Like right now when I'm talking to you, because of training in this for years, I'm also feeling my sits bones on the cushion. I feel my back against the chair. I feel my feet on the floor. So some of my attention is also in my body while I'm speaking. So Mm. I'm not completely lost in what I'm saying. And I'm not completely lost in listening to you when you're speaking. Right. And so one of the things that happens when we do that is that we might hear more too when we're listening. Mm. So hearing more what the other person is saying rather than planning what we're going to say next or waiting for them to finish. So that can be an interesting place to practice. Yeah. And there's all kinds of things, you know, just if you're taking a shower that you use that as a mindfulness practice, that you feel the water on your skin, that you use that as a time to really just be present with the experience. And if the mind is thinking a lot, just noticing that and coming back to feeling the water, being in the body, that kind of thing. Being there in the shower. Being there in the shower, just with showering. Or you're doing the dishes, just doing the dishes, Mm -hmm. you know? Right, yeah, Mm -hmm. so often you're already wherever you're going next when you're in the shower. Yes, and the thing about that is, all the studies have shown that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Mm. It doesn't matter where it's wandering to. And our minds are wandering about half the time. Right. Because <laughs> it's how we're wired. Yeah. So when we train our attention to be here, it doesn't matter what we're mindful of. It doesn't matter what we're present with, even if it's something that's a little uncomfortable it's deeply satisfying for us. You know, when we gather and collect our attention around one activity, it's nourishing that Mm -hmm. intimacy with experience. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, I've noticed that even just in the way in which you are pausing before you answer a question. You Mm -hmm. are actually just being present for a moment, maybe having a few moments of of silence and that's something that uh, it can be very hard for people to do they fill up the space by saying um you know (laughs) um 
which I just did myself. (laughs) (laughs) Because you were demonstrating. Because I was demonstrating. (laughs) (laughs) But to even just in our speech patterns, we're always rushing to the next thing and filling up the empty space. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit about how you attend to your own well-being beyond your your practice and your teaching how do you build your community and express your creativity Hmm. i love that question (laughs) yeah that's a question i've been really exploring i would say in the last few years especially i noticed that as much as i love teaching love practicing there was a time where my life, I, I felt it was actually out of balance because I wasn't nourishing creativity and community enough. Mm. And so in the last few years especially, I've focused on this. And it's so important that we care for ourselves. I really recognized this because my, my health was also communicating with me you mm-hmm. know, when I wasn't doing that. And I could uh, feel that my immune system was low and this kind of thing so a few of the ways I do that one is having a community of people around me who can offer me support who are healers or teachers and in some way and even if they're not formally healers or teachers that they have some kind of practice or form that they work with that uh, we can connect around that and I have a actually a lot of very beautiful women in my life who are healers or nutritionists or acupuncture different forms uh, massage body work things like that and so I can go to them Mm -hmm. for caring for me which is great and that's a an important part of my own self-care but then also just making time for uh, going for walks with people. It's mm-hmm. amazing how busy we all are and it can feel like there's not time for that. Or in a city like LA, people are in different parts of the city. But I try to make time even just to have people come over and have a cup of tea and mm-hmm. maybe practice together, sit a little bit. And then creativity is really important to me. So if I'm not nourishing my creativity, I don't feel right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm also a dancer, and I do uh, uh, Afro-Brazilian dance. I have a wonderful teacher, oh. Rachel Hernandez. She's incredible. <laughs> and uh, and then I also have a, another good friend who is a drummer and drum teacher, and his name is Khalil Cummings, and I go and drum with him, so I play Brazilian drums. Ah, so that's the wow. not silent part of my practice. <laughs> I really love uh, music and dance and yeah. culture, and so that's the noisy part of my practice. And, and the movement part in the <laughs> and dancing. And the movement, yeah, and it's very cathartic. And, you know, it's really important to move those things out, too. It's not just about sitting with and observing. Mm-hmm. There was a time in my practice where I was doing a lot of that, mm-hmm. sitting with and observing. And learning that I could do that and didn't have to react or didn't have to do something was a really helpful skill to learn. Mm -hmm. But then we can get out of balance with that, Mm -hmm. right? So now in my practice, having that flow and movement is really uh, helps me to feel balanced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. I get a 
a, a rounder view of you. Here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many different sides. <laughs> so just to um, wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you could speak to your younger self. Maybe it's that that girl who was first discovering that book about meditation or maybe it's yourself at another age your choice what what could what would you share with her you know one time i actually wrote a little note to her mm. when i was sitting one of the month long meditation retreats and at the back of the hall at spirit rock meditation center where I just was, I was telling you about. There's an altar, and there's a Kuan Yin, and they uh, let people put offerings, notes, um, objects on that altar. Mm -hmm. And so I actually wrote a little note to her. I think it was to my 17-year-old self. (laughs) And put it on that back altar. And I think it said something like, you know, uh, you will know so much happiness and peace. It's kind of like saying that uh, your suffering is not in vain, you know, mm. that it's really good uh, compost. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, all these beautiful qualities and freedom and opening of the heart and all these kinds of things we talk about really come out of being with difficulty Mm. it's not you know it's not a path of of um you know the buddha's teaching is the first noble truth that there is suffering that there is difficulty but of course the four noble truths he's talking about that it's workable Mm -hmm. that it's all workable you know whatever our conditions are whatever we uh are given that we can work with that that we can transform it Mm. yeah so uh i would say transformation is possible (laughs) right and that uh even though it may not make sense at this particular time from from her vantage point sure that uh yeah change change does happen over time when you put in the effort right that's certainly a a note that we could all all enjoy reading (laughs) and to learn that and to know that Mm. Thanks so much, Celeste. I appreciate you coming in today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Celeste, for sharing your insights about how we can listen to our own wisdom and test our perceptions in the laboratory of our own experience. You can find Celeste's audio-guided meditations at celesteyoung.com. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about The Real Podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel and on Twitter at Real the Podcast. Reach us at realthepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.